So today on the Tim Marner podcast show, we've got my mate, Matt Greenhouse. You're going to hate this bit. <laughs> BAFTA award winning screenwriter, filmmaker, best known for films Control, Nowhere Boy, and Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Yeah, and the pornographic one. No, we're not talking about that one. That's just between <laughs> me and you. Matt, appreciate this, mate. Really appreciate it. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Well, yeah, you know, we've been trying to get this going for a couple of years now. The yeah. COVID, it's everything, but yeah. we, we got here in the end on memories of. Uh, Bolton and, and Tim Marner. So, I've been to your house, I've been to your moved. study. It's moved now. But I've been to the house and they've like, the writing's on the wall everywhere. Yeah. Talk to me about your creative writing right. process. Because I feel a lot of people will get value from this. They might think you're a little bit mental from the way your brain works, but yeah. talk me through your process for writing. I think with, with everything, I always end up with things on the wall because I just like sitting and staring at things. And you know, when you have a, when you can sit and stare at a beautiful view and you just get lost in it. I think that's the same with, with my stories. And once I get a certain amount of structure or, or, or an understanding of the, the narrative of it, I kind of throw it up on a wall and stare at it for weeks and through that just 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 letting it sort of infiltrate your brain somehow uh it it, it starts to formulate into a structure that i want to see so you start off with research i just get all the stuff from the internet sh- shove it on the wall okay what's the story what's the story it's like you know you're looking at some kind of big puzzle hmm. And then suddenly, after you stare at something, it's like when you look when you look at a puzzle for for that long, or you, or you you look at a jigsaw for that long, you walk away from a jigsaw, you come back to a jigsaw, the pieces start in the end, they start fitting, and that and that is 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 kind of my approach of of why things are on the wall, because in the same way as a jigsaw is always on the table, you always come back to it if it's locked away in a laptop or a computer. Or a book, even, you know, it's very easy to turn the telly on instead. But when it's in your face and it's something that you're drawn to, like a good view, especially if it's your own inner workings of the brain, then I always find that that's the best way to go. So plenty of wall space wherever I live. <laughs> so talk, talk me through Nowhere Boy. Yeah. So obviously somebody approached you to do Nowhere Boy. Out, so so what, that, what do you what do you do from there? That came after Control. So Control did really well at Cannes, and it was like the breakout film, yeah. the, the Joy Division film. Um, what was that called? It Jack. Was it, it, was Ian, it, it was Ian Curtis. Really. Ian, Cur- right, Ian yeah, Curtis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who played him? Um, it was a guy called Sam. Oh God, he's going to kill me. We have to we'll have to re-edit that bit. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was an unknown. He was in a band in Leeds. Right. And Anton Corbijn, who's the big, you know, Depeche Mode director yeah. in U2 promos, that was his first, that was his first film. And he, Sam Riley. Sorry, Sam. You're not going to listen to Sorry, Sam. Then. He ain't going to listen to this. He's, he's not a subscriber. <laughs> no. uh, so he found, he was looking for people that could play and act, but because they didn't have any money, they couldn't really go to, an A-lister. Um, 
so he went scouting and because he knows bands uh, he's, been, he's been hanging around with them this is Anton he, he found Sam who'd already he was in a sort of middling to failing band in Leeds indie so he knew his way around the stage but he you know he, he wasn't really going anywhere so this opportunity arrived and he he, he took it with both hands he also looked like he had which helped uh, but the performance that Anton and he got together and and and, and was able to materialise for that film is what made it. Were you a fan anyway? No, I wasn't, and not not because it, uh, I I put Joy Division on and, and rejected them. It's because I was quite kind of ignorant to to that era of music because that was sort of late seventies and into early eighties. And then I I mean I was a New Order fan. A new order, you know, took me from Blue Monday into the Hacienda, and, and I was I was with them all the way, technique and all that. So Joy Division was not. I wasn't a fan because I disliked the music. I wasn't a fan because I was ignorant to to what to what they had put out. And then the education that I was allowed to have by researching that movie just totally changed everything. And you know, I, I find it. I'd love to listen to their music, but I also find it very difficult as well, right now. Because you know, when I was, it, it was a big film for me to to write and to to go to those dark places where Ian went. I had to go there as well. So, so talking, let's do control then. So obviously, somebody approaches you to do it. How does somebody come to approach you to? Yeah. So it, it turned out Debbie's wife and his his daughter Natalie. Yeah. Curtis, they, they'd already been working on a script with somebody else. It seems like I always pick up sloppy seconds, but uh, which is probably a story we can go yeah, back yeah, there yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a case of they had been talking to these American guys um, who were fans of the band and who were trying to say they were produced, film producers. There was a script out, apparently it was uh, a fan that wrote it and he was American. And... Um, Debbie hated the script, so in the same way that we were just talking about Sam hating the other script we can't, can't talk about, suddenly they, the idea was to find a Mancunian writer. I'd just come out of TV, I'd written Burn It, which was like a, the first thing in the, the early 2000s for BBC Three, and I'd written an episode of Cold Feet. Yeah. I was just starting out on my career, as it, as, it, as it was, and you know with the clocking off as well. And then 24-hour party people came out and I was just so jealous because I should have written that. Yeah, that's right. I should have written it. I mean, it would have been... I mean, you know, Frank Cottrell Boyce is a fantastic writer and, you know, in the end, it's a it's a funny film, but it would have been 20 times funnier and, and more brilliant if I did it. Sorry, Frank, if you're listening to this. <laughs> but but then, it, then it became a case of, all right, if there's something else about, you know, the Godfathers of Music in our town, then I wanted to do it. So I heard about it on the ether that they that they wanted to find a Mancunian writer. I had a really good agent, and it's still the same agent that I've got. I said, find out who's doing it, put me in the game, because that's I prefer to write that than cold feet. You know that that's where I want you know want to be. They find out who they were. I sat down with Debbie, the producer Orion, who's from Texas, um, and Natalie. We got on. They read Burn It. They understood I had a Mancunian voice that would probably transfer quite well into into the world, which they were were probably lacking in that first script, and 
yeah, we went ahead. You were, and and really, there was no structure there that that I was told to do. I hadn't read the old script. So coming back, coming back to the thing of it again. Then, yeah. So are they are they giving you the script that they've kind of already done, and then you're going to your boards and you're writing the stuff up there, or are you? What, no, no, didn't give doing, me the script. So you're doing research first. So, so Debbie's written a book. So Debbie wrote a book called Touching from a Distance, which was about her relationship with Ian and, you know, how that manifested from when they were at school to how it all, you know, imploded and ending with his, you know, with his suicide. So it was a really, really touching, moving book, well written, obviously from the heart, you know, so as a, as a sort of text or a blueprint that you can jump off. It was brilliant for me because I was just in there. I mean, it was it was a really emotive uh, way to start. So you start with that. I get the book. They decide to say, okay, Matt, go and write the script. I get the book. I then go in the book, and what I do then is I highlight everything in that book that I feel is of interest. I don't think about the structure of the story. I don't feel like what I am going to do later. So this is how the adaptations work. And then I highlight everything, even to the words, right? Even to one word that I think works for me. And then what happens after that is then I transcribe those highlights with longhand into a pad because you write them out again and suddenly you find that it gets further and further into your DNA. Right. And then I, then, and that's when I start, once I get it onto a pad in longhand, I then stick that longhand onto the wall but I do that probably not with just one book. I probably do it with about five key books, right? So all this information that I feel now that is part of me because I've rewritten it out. Because rewrote, you know, it's like when you've got a spelling test. You get a spelling test wrong when you're a kid, and you you got the spelling wrong. You yeah. had to write it out ten times, yeah, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's how you learn things. So writing writing it out again and then sticking it on the wall. Has somebody told you how to do this, or no. is this? The Matt Absolutely, no one's taught me anything about anything. Right. I mean, the, the, just just going back from then, the way I learned about scripts was, you know, I became the first T-boy on Hollyoaks by fluke, and then I started working with scripts through that because you had to learn how to break down a script in order to be able to, you know, to make it happen. So the practical side of shooting a script is how I first came into the industry. Um, but as far as writing a script, and no one's taught me anything. It ju I just got to a point where I thought, I, mean, I used to write nightclub reviews. Um, I, I, I just married them together and I thought, I can do this. So, I mean, it was like the Ramblers and Batman, wasn't it? When you walk into your studio, like it was the thought. Only I, I, I just, I, I know we've talked about it before, but I was really interested in your thought process and how your brain works. Mm. Um, and doing that, but when you're looking at that board, it's only me that can decipher that. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's just like I'm looking and I'm thinking, is, is this guy all right? No, I'm not right. No, I'm not at all. And I'm actually on the on the spectrum totally. But that you come to terms. So with that. that one there is. I mean, have you ever thought that you your brain works like ADHD? Have you got? Have you? Do you think you're on the sort of spectrum of that? I think so. I think it's how you, 
going back to that jigsaw is is how you piece things together yeah you know within in the capacity of your own brain and everyone does it differently and i think it works for me i think you know being a writer works for me and being able to structure stories or see things happen in the future you know it's it, it you know and constantly sort of have visions of how things interact in the future yeah. or in fantasy land works for my brain and when you're a writer and you can actually structure your own way of doing it and yeah. you, you it feels very creative because you, you you know you haven't really got anyone telling you how how it should be done yeah is there's no sort of right or wrong way yeah. i know it's my way and i feel very much and they call it the flow don't they yeah yeah um when i get into that situation and it's not easy to get in the flow because sometimes you you kick against it because it takes a lot of concentration yeah. in order to be able to slow everything down and it's not easy then you know just sort of like lighting a fag or something like that or having a drink it's difficult to get in the flow but once you're in it it's the best place ever and what is it, so you're doing your long downs, you've got it on the board, obviously you're looking at deciphering it. Yeah. Do you know when you're going to get into that flow? Or do you set yourself when you've done like yoga fitness before where you kind of like, or does it just kind of come? There's two, there's two sides to the flow. One, one is the structural flow is when you're trying to sort of piece it together as, as how it would work as a movie yeah. or even as a TV series. There's that, that side, which is very much the jigsaw side of the flow and then there's the other side which is the writing flow where you know you're actually sat there writing the scenes and you know it's just coming it's just happening and you just feel you know you, you could be there 10 minutes or you know you could be there feeling it's 10 minutes but you've been there sort of like two hours yeah. and that happens but that is only you know it, it, that isn't instantaneous you know, that takes a lot of all, all that imbibing, all everything you're doing, everything's working up to that moment within the writing because yeah. that's the apex, that's where you've got to be. You know, that's what, that's your money, that's your money earner. Yeah, yeah. So is when you're writing like that. And that's also when you, when it feels good because everything that you've been researching and everything that you've been uh, trying to get into your head in order to write that script is coming out and some people, it doesn't happen. And sometimes, some days, it doesn't happen as yeah. well, you know. Hey, I'm, I'm, you know what? Because my, my brain's like that, mate. And I kind of, like, I wondered how yours were structurally. Because, obviously, I kind of, I don't do it to your level where you've got it on the board. Because my brain does work like that. But I'll do research and let it kind of sink in. And then I'll go for a bit of a walk. And then, in my own head, I'm sort of piecing it together. So, sometimes I'm walking dog and I get here. There's just something that happens is there's an hour, an hour and a half flow that I've got where it just feels like I'm not doing anything, mm. but I've got to put myself in that situation. But I just wondered how your creative process works because that's what really interests me about your brain. Well, I think how walking you... as well. I mean, walking, especially if it's a gentle walk, n yeah. not necessarily. I mean, I've had good ideas on runs as well, but gentle walking is 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 brilliant for ideas. You know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, coming out of that because that inner inner monologue, that inner voice is so important yeah. to to kind of listen to and to be able to go on a solo walk and yeah. talk to yourself yeah. <laughs> like like crazy. But I've been around here in Bolton when I used to live in Riverton with a with a tape record, you know, and, and going on a walk and just and, and just the ideas come and 
that's how long ago it was it was a tape recorder it wasn't even an iphone and uh you know the, i think that gentle movement or acceleration of heartbeat yeah. does help so that it doesn't surprise me that you get a, a buzz yeah. or you get a creative well, I, I did a bit of research into it and i was just like i wondered why when i'm walking that most of my ideas come in and they say um, your cars are like your second heart so when you actually get your cars pumping it pushes blood back up to your head so you can actually be able to think of it better yeah which i thought was really interesting obviously like moving forward and stuff helps me think forward as well yeah um but I was I was reading something about also sort of like judges who give him parole and all that and it, and also meal times work as well and you and the glucose hit yeah. of what you get because yeah. the thing uh, and they were saying that the amount of people that got um, uh, their parole passed was at the optimum after the judges have just ate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah like, that, right? like sixty-five percent more than if yeah. and if they, they were having a, a glucose dip. <laughs> but it's interesting because for me it's like I, I like to tap into those resources to get my optimum creative you know cognitive function and stuff like that yeah. it's little things like that that are kind of like knowing when to eat and when not to eat knowing that I've got this maybe two or three hour and a half where I'm this kind of clean total focus yeah. you know, and it's stuff like that knowing things like that to actually help it out have you watched um, Let It Be uh, the Beatles doc. No, not yet. I've seen little trailers of it and stuff. Is it like a bee? Is it yeah, yeah, the you um, get back. Oh, it's awesome. So yeah. McCartney and Lennon only only did three, four hours a day, and then and then they got either got too tired or too stoned, or yeah. whatever. But that documentary, I I mean, you can see if you want to look out, especially a collaborative process. Yeah. At the top level, you know, they were not looking at much yeah. more than two three, three to four hours a day and they would i mean paul paul still says that and then after that everything goes a bit fuzzy but what what was interesting about that is that they'd then go home and they'd still be thinking about it so it still formulate but yeah. just wouldn't be in that sort of cauldron of lemon yeah. mccartney and harrison and star so but that what, what you're saying there is what's happening with you right on the board and it, it just lets it get in your bed so you can go and sit on the couch and you still formulate in your brain. It doesn't stop though, Tim. It's like it becomes a, um, you know, what happens to me is then, you know, kids come home, you've got a domestic life or whatever, you know, yeah. and that you, you want to be present in that time. It's, it's sometimes very difficult, but it comes back to me later on at night because I can't shut off from it. And that is an issue for me sometimes is that it doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, and, you know, <laughs> That's when it gets a bit interesting. But so what happens then is I, I, I go back to it and I stick the football on. Yeah. Whatever match is on. And I feel like I'm not working, but I am. And I get my stuff out and I still work. But because the football's on, I feel like it's okay. I'm still, I, I am still doing something normal. Yeah. And I am not sort of writing and creating. But to me, the, there's a resurge of energy that comes about 7 8 o'clock yeah. which I can't ignore because you know if you're talking about time scales the whole point of you know an industry which you are is a business you've got to get the thing out yeah. so the quicker you get it out the better you, the quicker you get paid you know so there's no point ignoring a sort of a window of sort of three hours of doing it the problem is is that it's pretty hard to shut off 
you know, come sort of midnight, you do eventually. So when you've got it on the board and then you've deciphered and it's, it's starting to flow a little bit for you and stuff, what's your next process after that, after you've got it off there? So therefore, you know, you, you're working with producers and you're working with the people that pay you. So you yeah. have to then give them something physical, practical. You have to give them an outline. Do you, at any point during that process from the board to that, do you sound it with sandboard at the Nicola or anything like that? Do you ask your opinion on it or...? Nicola always, always ask her, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, you know, she's she's, she's the number one at what she does, so it's yeah. very, it's very handy just to say that. But what what we try not to do is, uh, you know, it could take over. Yeah. With her job and my job, yeah, it could absolutely just become everything that yeah. you talk about is is that based and I just wondered about that collaboration bit like you're saying about the Beatles and stuff because mm. like you are literally quite an introvert as a person aren't you are you love your own edge and love your own space yeah at what point do you sandboard it to somebody before you actually show it to somebody who's paying the bills yeah no it uh it depends who you're working with if you really trust them um then you can soundboard early yeah. If you feel that they're constantly judging you and they just want your A game and they don't really want to, they don't have the time right. to sort of like have this batting to and forth, yeah. then you go, all right, well, I've just got to deliver what, what they want. It depends how much your employer wants to be part of the process. Right. And so you, it's different people by people. I mean, the, you know, the, the studios, just want to earn money. They don't want to know whether, you know, does character A have a, you know, a, a huge second left testicle? Yeah. Left one. It could be a right one. Depends, <laughs> depends which way you're looking, innit? <laughs> so, you know, you have to, you, you have to gauge who you, I mean, it's like you with your clients, I imagine, you know, yeah. you, everyone's different. I imagine a lot of people yeah. different on a- Yeah, but I just, before I show it them, I've gone, gone through about maybe five or six different people, not even the girls through there, that not necessarily in that frame, I need a female's opinion yeah. before I show it to the client, just so I've got, you know, I call it like wigwam thinking where everybody's in the thing, but the elder makes the decision. I need to get everybody's opinions before I go, right, this is the one that I'm going to show, or this is the decision I'm going to make with the client before we see it. I just wondered how you did that, because obviously yeah. you're there in your own head doing your thing. Well, unless you're, unless you're generating that job. So, I mean, there's a few ideas that I've personally put out there in the last two years, which, you know, I want to produce and want to, and want to be sort of like the the source, as it were, but up until then everything has come to me via agents you know yeah. or you know or people wanting to work with me uh but the next natural step is for me to put my own stories out and to have a lot more control o over it but that is then about taste factors so you know we, we you know about the sean rider yeah. the sean rider projects and the problem with that is is we've been trying to get that out we were we were going on it then you know covid which hit. is called twisting my melons it was called twisting my melon so melon is your brain yeah melons everyone thinks is a, a pair of uh, yeah. breasts and which isn't right so it's a steve mcqueen saying so steve mcqueen the actor said to a director when he was uh, probably some load of crap what's the swearing situation here you're talking to me all right well it's a load of bullshit to, to steve mcqueen who's a proper movie star he said you know 
oh no way man you're twisting my melon it's like you're twisting my head here you're just actually talking a load of bullshit so that's the thing so we we've got to a stage where we were going to shoot we were going to make it happen and then covid it and then i've I've lost the the lead actor because he was you know under budget for him and he's, he's doing bigger things um so it's a constant battle to get that back on board but the problem we also have with it is that everyone goes, who cares, you know, about in the wider aspects apart from Manchester yeah. and the UK, who cares about Sean's music or Happy Monday's music? And I'm saying, well, there's a lot more people than you think. But because of the industry and the people that own the purse strings of the industry, they they don't particularly think like us. Yeah. And that's the problem of getting things over the line with yeah. that aspect. So, you know, we're so is that just on a back burner, that one, so you get the right investors, the right people? It is. I mean, if you're not into the Manchester scene and stuff, obviously an investor from America is not even going to understand what the fuck we're on about. Exactly, and exactly. To get that on board. But, but what, you, what I always do with these musical sort of orientated dramas is say, right, well, drain, drain the music out of it and what have you got? right you know it's not and, yeah. and and with sean's story it's definitely a father-son story yeah. it's his relationship with derek who became the roadie of, of him and the happy mondays and derek was wanting to be an artist in his own right and that rivalry yeah. lasted up until sean was 40 you know what i mean yeah. and it's, it's about that it's about dysfunctional family you know it is about to a certain extent uh, a sort of uh uh a question questionable about if is everyone right for fame you know it obviously there's a there's a theme about music in there as well but you know the 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 basis of that film is a dysfunctional family film and that's the genre that you that you say is universal because every country's got dysfunctional families yeah yeah yeah. so but it's very hard to sell when you've got someone as famous as sean this is what i don't get is because everyone says yeah we know who sean is and they go he's not famous enough i said well listen i could have written that film without sean and it would have been a really interesting film and everyone would go yeah yeah that's really interesting but you actually got a figurehead that's to lead that into a market yeah where you you know people just it's just very very strange to me that but I I can understand why people think it's esoteric at the same time I think it'll happen there's a lot there's There's a lot of people who want that to happen yeah it's a couple of there's a story of like somebody becoming famous who never thought they were famous and battling with that fame and stuff it's rags to riches as well, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, also it's about mental health, you know, yeah. because Sean was totally dyslexic and yeah. he's still a left field thinker. And, you know, it, it, there's so many themes in there um, that are relevant to today. And I still think that 90s music and that 90s theme of, if you look at Levi's, they did a whole classic range based on... Yeah. Um, you know, the Happy Mondays clothes and Central Station, who, who were their designers, they'd just done it. It was literally like this. Everyone's wearing baggy, baggy jeans, you know what I mean? It's like, if you look at Billie Eilish, it's just, it's, it's all there. Yeah. And you look at the Asian and the Classic Nights, it's full of kids. Yeah. Send me back to Control then and Ian Curtis and then writing that script for that so you've got it on there you've long ran it you've read the books you've done the research I mean are you like proper getting into his psyche where it's affecting your own mental health or are you I mean how deep are you going yeah I mean, totally I mean every character is part of you yeah 
you you can't be on the outside looking in. So have you got quite sort of um, well, you must have quite an empathetic nature where you're actually feeling sort of emotionally connected to this person that you're reading. Yeah, it yeah. becomes part of your psyche. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it, uh, totally empathetic, which is which is kind of weird because maybe that's what's make what sometimes that makes you a bit cold in in normal life because yeah. you you know that as soon as you cross that line you, you become a big softer yeah yeah and i think you have to be a big softy in, in writing characters which is probably good for me because it means that i can get that out of my system in, in, a, in a creative way rather than on a on an everyday way which you know i'll probably get, end up joining some kind of missionary yeah, yeah, that really was. Yeah, yeah, I won't mind that one though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you're actually writing that, getting into his thing, and then you ju- you start writing out the script. Then, so therefore, you have to get into the structure, and, and you know the obvious one is the three act structure uh, to make it uh, industry standard. Yeah, and you know there's this sort of like breaking into two catalysts. Uh, there's certain points within that midpoint, you know. The, the, there are points within the script that you have to hit as a as a as a dramatic moment. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. I when you're writing, yeah, I didn't know any of that at all. It actually just came to me naturally, and I'm not saying that I'm just some kind of. Yeah. But I always thought, when are things getting boring? And to me, you know, a lot of films, a lot of scripts, whatever, just get boring, and it's like. It's, the, the, the main thing about story is if you cop out of wanting to know what happens next, then you are not in the story, yeah? And for me, that's a personal thing. So everything I do, I go, right, do I want to know what happens next here? If I don't, then, you know, make it happen. And I think that has always served me well to naturally be able to construct uh, a narrative or a film or a movie or, or a you know an outline for a movie that makes me feel I'm interested here therefore hopefully an audience will be but you do get people that are just you know totally different to me and and therefore you know things can drag in my how much did writing for city life benefit you writing for control uh, did you get anything from writing for the, the nightclub scene yeah I got loads from it, a free entry and a few free drinks. I don't think I got any girlfriends out of it because none of them believe me. Uh, I got chucked out of a few because <laughs> no one would let me in because I was a 17 and underage. Is that what you were Yeah, like yeah. I remember going to Monroe's in Stockport. <laughs> Monroe's. And uh, they just looked at me because I had trainers on and jeans and just went, no, not tonight. I said, listen, I'm here to, to review your club. Anyway, no, there's a few that I'd travelled to. There was one up here, actually, in uh, Farmworth. What was it called? It wasn't... It wasn't... It was. It, there was a mad one in Farmworth as well. But I got into that one. Um, the, the thing about City Life and writing, well, what, what it did is it reignited my... Uh, when I got to that stage at Ollie Oates and Mersey TV, when I was behind the camera, you know, sort of making tea, I actually remembered that I could write, and I tried to make it as a writer at an early age. 
you know, in a in a creative sort of re- nightclub review. I wrote for Mix Mag as well, you know. I mean, I'd, it did get out there a little bit. Uh, and I'd forgotten about that talent. And I think if I'd had, if I had not written for City Life, I wouldn't have remembered when I was about 28, 29, that I used to write. You used to love writing. Yeah, right. yeah. And so th- therefore, I think I would have probably just progressed in a production way yeah. in TV. So I'd become like a a line producer or a producer, I wouldn't have become a writer. So City Life was integral for me to to sort of remember. Can you remember the point where you wanted to be a writer? Can you actually remember that point where the, this is what I really want to be doing? Uh, the only thing I could do at school was not not particularly write, because I think, I, you know, my son's very dyslexic, and, and I think I was as well. It takes me just to read things. But the only thing I was good at was story, you know, thinking about, uh, composition uh, and not comprehension composition yeah. and how you know I'm making stuff up and characters that were very vibrant in my head the hard thing was getting it down on paper yeah so as far as you know there was two two times I wanted to be right it was one I came out of Loretto College in, in um, Hume and I went I want to be on the scene. I want to be on the dance. I want to be on the race dance music scene because that's where I was. I want to be someone. How do I do it? I can't make music. Can't DJ. Can't dance. <laughs> I can. I can take loads of these. Everyone yeah. could. You know what I mean? But and I mean, how do I be someone? And it was then I went. Well, I can write. So let me try and get into city life because they were doing the the, the reviews at the time. And was so, that before Hass? That. No, no, that was Just that at the same time. That was definitely sort of eighty-eight time, eighty-nine. Yeah. So I wrote to the City Life because there's been a book come out called uh, "And God Created Manchester" by Sarah Champion, and she'd kind of done the the indie side of stuff. But I said to I, I went I wrote in slagging the book off, and I'd never read the book really. To be honest. Saying if you've got any openings, I write nightclub reviews, and it just so happens, right place, right time. Look again in the same way I got the job at Hollywood. It's the same way I got the job at City Life, but I did put myself out there. I I wrote it into the editor, and he wrote he on the same letter. He just wrote on the back said, "Come in and see me in the new year." On the letter, so I did. I went in to see him and said, "Listen, I go out to nightclubs, and they were all like, not on the scene. They were all too old." Yeah. And he said, right, go out, write me a review. So I ended up going to Rubinsky's in Fallowfield, <laughs> writing this review. Got in, uh, got in, wrote a review. They took a picture of it. They really liked the review. And, and then that was it. So I was kind of like buzzing around. So I did pubs and clubs. I became the nightlife editor for City Life for quite a long time, for maybe about three or four years, I was expecting to go into lifestyle editor, which was then the full-time job. And then he said, no, you, you're not reliable enough. <laughs> so <laughs> which was the best thing for me, actually, because yeah, yeah. otherwise... So how, yeah. did, how did you get from there, then, into doing the Hollyoak stuff and that? So there, after that, I was unemployed. So then it was, I came out of that at 19, yeah. yeah. So I was unemployed because I didn't get any A-levels because obviously I went to Loretto but didn't get any A-levels because yeah. I was out all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I was signing on for about two years uh, and then it, then it got to the point where I was 
out too much and I was thinking I need to kind of rein this in a bit. I mean, is there any chance of getting a degree? But because I had a portfolio of work from City Life and yeah. and uh, uh, a mixed mag and, and places like that, I could then went to Warrington or UCI or it was part of Chester College and, and I got on a media course there because I, I needed to get out. Was that media? Yeah, media, business. I mean, it was a you know bullshit course in many ways, but... Yeah. I needed some kind of. It wasn't happening with the journalism, yeah. And it, it I couldn't keep going out, <laughs> yeah. So I needed some kind of grounding. Uh, but instead of getting A levels, I had, I had a big book of, book of reviews and journalism that that got me into there. And so after that, so I went in as a mature student at twenty one, came out at twenty four, and that's when that opening came up. And I literally turned up. Yeah, I tell you, I, tell, I turned up pissed. I went out the night before Discotheque Royale. <laughs> so I had, I, I, had, I had the biggest interview in my life, right? Mersey TV, where Brookside's filmed and all that, yeah. Just pissed, it was some pills as well. Uh, I was out with Millsy, so it probably was pills. Yeah, yeah. So, Mick Mills? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were out, it was like something like a. You know, it was like a student night. Wednesday night, Discotheque Royale said, listen, do not, I've got this most important interview in my life. Do not keep me out anyway. I wake up. I'm still at home in Presswich at this time. I'm, I'm still at home. I wake up at the time I'm supposed to be in Liverpool. You know, you know what I mean? It's just that. <gasps> Straight on the phone. Uh, yeah, the exhaust has dropped off from the motorway. <laughs> You know, in the car. And I can't believe that they took it. I just dive into the car, drive up, and I must be reeking. Must be absolutely reeking. Again, but because I'm still pissed, I'm dead cocky. Right? So I go, I walk into this room, and they must have been desperate for a runner or a T-boy. They must yeah. have... But I'm quite cocky. I'm going, yeah, yeah, well, whatever you want to do. And I must have made an effect. Anyway, I'm driving home and I'm sort of two hours late for the interview. I'm pissed. I get the job. <laughs> and I never look back since. So, I, I mean, to me, that is probably the maddest moment. If you look at the, at the sort of, the variables of life. Because if it wasn't, you yeah, get into that. That sliding doors yeah, yeah, yeah. moment. Yeah. And the way that it happened in such a crazy way. But at the same time, you know, I was always pushing to sort of be in the creative industries. And and I don't know. Yeah, I feel very, very, very lucky from that moment. Yeah. Because it so easily, they could have said no don't bother coming in or, you know, no, you stink of booze. <laughs> no, uh, but they didn't, they, they gave me that job and, and, and that is the catalyst for, for everything that's happened since. So you've done that, then obviously you've got these, what did it feel like when somebody said, we write the screenplay for Control? Because that's like, from where you were, so that's like quite a big... Yeah, no, that was, that was massive and I tend not to try and overthink that. Because wow. because one writing a movie is totally different to writing a, a, a TV script. Yeah. Because you're writing double. Yeah. So it's it's twice as hard. Yeah. Um, and two, because of the the way of 
the expectation of, of Ian, which I was aware of, you know, and, and Joy Division. Yeah. And, and, and three, I was about then to go and meet my heroes, New Order, because then I had to meet them as part of the research project. And I got going, oh my God, wow. what is this? Now, now I'm in the same room as them, and they're looking at me and saying, you're in charge of Ian's, Ian's legacy as far as a movie's concerned. And you're just going, okay, no pressure. And But it is all pressure, but I think what you then do is you retreat, or what I do is retreat into my own mind. And just said, you know, that that's you can't be doing it for anybody else. You have to do it for you and for what what's within you. Uh, and if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. At that moment of time, I wasn't thinking if it's not good enough for them. I, I was actually thinking about everybody else. I've learned that isn't the healthiest way. What do you mean by that? Give me that. I don't. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. If like stuff that I'm doing is it for me or is it for the other person? Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's a difficult one. But now I've realised. I mean, I'm fortunate in things that I do. I want to do them for me, sort of creatively. I'm not having to, you know, go right fucking Coronation Street or whatever to pay bills or yeah. Holly. I, mean, I love Hollyoaks, by the way. No, I say I say but so everything I do is a personal choice you know, of, of creativity. But in the early days, you were thinking, what do they, what are they going to think of it? And, and, and how are they going to react? And, you know, what's this person, um, are they, are they going to like it? And in the end, I've, I've realised that's, that's something that, that's not the road you should go down. And really, the only way you're going to like it is to cut that out and actually start from within and understand the reasons why you're doing it in the first place. And therefore you, you should get a better, you should get a better script or a, or a better piece of art or, or something that comes out of you because you're not being um, sidetracked by other people's opinions that you can't change until you get something out that you think is good enough. That's really good, that, mate. <laughs> is that deep man is that like yeah it's, well, that's what I'm just thinking to myself because I'm thinking did you do you think Control wouldn't have been the film it is today if you would have been a fanboy because I, I feel that maybe you going on that journey and reading that book has actually given you a better insight than actually being a fanboy from the outside I think totally in a, you know in, this, in, in the same way I mean with John of course I was a fan but I I wasn't a fanboy because John was a different era, John Lennon, yeah. and it, so therefore you're still researching and, and trying to understand his life because it it, it wasn't out there, and, and if you were trying to write it sort of twenty in the eighties, you you wouldn't have the amount of research that you you've got at your fingertips today. So everything is a journey, sort of mentally first, you know, sort of yeah. sort of within rather than without, and I think that 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 in, internal journey. Is key, you know. I mean, apart as as far as sort of as knowing if you feel it, and not enough is. I mean, we're in we kind of live in a world. I think at the moment where everything is is pretty much can be surface. Yeah. And you know, with with social media, which I'm not on, um, and I, I think internal journeys. And, and an honesty within sometimes maybe neglected 
but for me it's an integral part which is why I'm I'm you know those, those surface sort of platforms not not that they don't do help for other people but it doesn't help me creatively yeah. so from writing control and Ian and moving on to nowhere boy and John writing about John Lennon what have you learned from writing about that that you that helped you write this because obviously with Ian you've not really got an outside perspective apart from look this is my band I'm not following your stone roses you know what I mean you're either one or the other kind of thing mm. what has changed now because you've got mm. like a and almost a bit of a an idea of you John Lennon is and stuff like that how do you go about writing something like that well with John I mean I mean it's a massive leap from me into John because John is you know after Muhammad Ali is probably yeah. the most you know famous person or especially of, of the last generation I'm not sure about this generation but you know he he, he is such a, a massive icon so to be given that mantle again you go wow that's heavy you know how do you be able are, are you able to sort of tell that story but the, the good thing about that was I wasn't telling his Beatles story to the extent of when they became massive and popular I was talking about John as a kid and then that was a story that wasn't told so therefore the expectations of you know you're not you're not seeing them at, at Shea Stadium and all that was was a lot easier so and there was an untold story there about his relationship with his mother because he lived with Aunt Mimi um, and his mother lived around the corner, but he didn't know. And his dad left him, at, you know, when he was four and all that, which were all these kind of, I didn't know that. It was just an insight into, and most stories, you know, are good when you don't know them. And I think this was the untold story of John Lennon, which allowed me to be more, you know, sort of internalise it better because not everyone knew about it whereas if it was about you know help and, and, and them at the apex it, it would be very difficult and I think you know that's why that film probably hasn't been made you know because there's so much footage about there I mean how do you recreate that yeah. but John as a kid it was a lot easier so when you've done with the writing on each one of them and, the, and it comes to actually doing the filming process and stuff. Are you actually there on set? What's your sort of role when you get when you get there on set? Well, it's a, it depends on who the, who the director is. Yeah. I mean, and some directors are very collaborative, and some aren't. And and some don't want you there because you can create problems for them. Yeah. Because it's all about, uh, you know, it's all about. Uh, interpretation right so you know Debbie's book about Ian came out that was her interpretation and that then I interpret interpretate it with a script mm. then the director interpretates it and then the actor interpret, and then the editor bloody so it goes down that line of interpretation yeah. and sometimes you know you've got to be careful how many how how many times you do that and and people are and directors more than most people are very very sensitive about their interpretation because that's let's face it is kind of the most important one because yeah. Yeah. that's the one that gets them on screen and because they can now tell the tell the actors how to interpret it so uh well as far as collaboration is concerned it all depends on how secure the director is in their own mind right. and and their own 
uh, sort of way of being, and 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 there's definitely more secure <laughs> directors uh, than than others. Because some directors are absolutely total, you know, wackos. Yeah, sort of a lot of ego and stuff like my way, the highway, no, but even. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. They're probably you know serial killers if they weren't directors. <laughs> what's out of everything that you've done? What's what's been the most rewarding bit for you? Out of everything that you've done, that you just kind of look at back now and you just kind of city life. You know, I mean, because without it, it wouldn't have, it, it not it wouldn't have happened. City life. Doing those nightclub views, I look back on it, and you know, just bobbing around town a lot of the time on my own. And as, as you said before, I'm an introvert. Yeah. So you know, going into nightclubs, at sort of like twelve o'clock on your own, and then doing you doing a, doing a review, and and that's in, yeah, it's you, you, yeah, you couldn't do that now yeah. as as a sort of you know. 49 year old you know mm. imagine me trying to go into a club and write <laughs> I think I'd get nicked <laughs> you know what I mean but mm. I did it because there was a scene going on and and, and no one seemed to, to to find it imposing uh, and the music and the dancing and also you know sort of drugs and it was all it was a perfect storm mm. for an introvert because you could lose yourself on a dance floor and you didn't particularly need loads of mates even though because it, it was a very inclusive scene, mm. you know. You, the, and then, it, and then it got obviously really nasty. But it, I, I, I just look back at that and go, "Wow, well done you." Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, well done for putting yourself in that situation. Well done for writing those reviews. I've got a few of them in that book. I haven't got all of them. And there's a guy that I know that's got them all because he used to be assistant editor there. And I'm gonna go and um, I'm gonna go and scan them all. And I, I'm going to put them on, I'm going to give them the kids because I think to me that if you're talking about a movie catalyst, if you're going to do my life story, yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Because, you know, I'd have my, my youth, you'd understand where I came from. But the, what kicked me on was getting that and getting out there and writing. Because without that, 10 years later at Ollie Oaks, I would have gone, I've never written before. Why would I write now? If you were going to give advice to somebody who wants to get into screenwriting, directing, like a like teenager or young, what, what advice would you give them? Read loads of scripts. Yeah. Where can you get scripts from? There's loads of, there's loads of internet. internet. Scriptorama, yeah. yeah. You, most scripts are published now to, to the internet because there's no, there's no reason it actually promotes the film. You know what I mean? It's not like it's like a trailer now. If you can read the scripts, I got me some of the James Bond one the other day. And I think once, because the professional industry needs you to format it professionally, I, I think you might have as, as much talent in the world, but unless yeah. you actually are able to put it down and format it properly, yeah, then people will just think you're a student, yeah. So if you want to get ahead of the game, get Final Draft, which is the industry standard. Get Final Draft. Learn how to use it. Learn how to, you know, deliver a script or let someone print it out and let, let them think you're a professional. I mean, Understand the rules before you break them. That's easy, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There are those rules. Yeah. And they're definitely there. The great thing about my job is that it still comes from the script. Yeah. We've not been bypassed by technology 
it means me inputting in script, but as far as formatting is concerned, you've got to be able to do it. Because they'll sniff you out, you know, if, if there's a script that does not look professional, right, it's gone. It's that cutthroat and it's getting more cutthroat. Yeah. Then I would say after that, um, you know, look at your favourite films, get your, get your favourite film scripts, learn them off by art, write them out again, yeah, imbibe them. So, because you've already got a relationship with those films. So let that kind of inspire you to what you want to do, but learn those basics first. And then as far as, um, you know, writing something, then, then, then you go out and try and find an original idea and do it. Got to write. It's like the professional sort of tennis player, golf player, football player. It's 10,000 hours or whatever it is, 10 million hours mm -hmm. that you've got to do it. You can't not... If you, if you just expect to turn up and write a script and someone to go, okay, that's, that's three million quid, it ain't gonna happen. You gotta write, you gotta fail, you gotta fail again and keep failing, failing, failing. And I've said to you before, you know, I would say 50, 60% of my stuff hasn't been made, but it's all been a help. Because it's also, also character building as well, because it's a tough, tough, can't say tougher industry you will get chucked out yeah. without a doubt and uh, you know especially if you, the, the higher you go up the more money it takes to to produce your stuff because yeah. then you know i mean the, the it's ruthless and I, I, i'm sure everyone knows about the hollywood sort of the, the hollywood game people come out of that ruined and, and a lot of people do i think that's it Matt. but what we need to do is you need once you've done this next project and it's been done you need to come back and talk about it the next. big so one I'm excited <laughs> about this one yeah the big one yeah mate appreciate your time yeah. hope it's helped some people out and got a bit of an insight what goes into a screenwriter director's head yeah yeah i mean yeah it's it, it's very difficult to to sort of get that out there what happens within i mean i think for a creative mind sometimes you it all happens within and therefore it's very hard to speak about it. I'm not sure I'd be able to have done this 10 years ago, to be yeah. honest. I think it, it's only through experience that I'm now coming out and yeah. being able to vocalise. Yeah, it's just, after, you know, I just, I just say to people, you've got to find your own way of doing it like you do, because it's so interesting when I see great people like yourself and they're like, they're all, you, a great person's so insular, they're so introverted in their own head and stuff, you've got to find your way of doing it and how, you know, like your way's sort of different to mine and everybody's got to find their own way. So I just, I'm hoping it helps some people out when they're coming up with designs or they're coming up with, you know, do it your way. Well, the great thing about YouTube, good thing about YouTube is that you've created an environment which absolutely works for you, you yeah. know, and, and you, you know, it's also a business, yeah. it works as well, because yeah. let's face it, you've got to get paid. Yeah. And it's all right just saying, you know, I've got an idea there and there and everywhere, but you have to, you have to go from beginning to end in order for your clients to come back, you know, in order to get paid, to pay one and to pay yourself. And if yeah. it, you have to move beyond the sort of student way of thinking about creativity and, and bring a whole new different level of, you know, business acumen into the game. Yeah. But 
Of course, you've got to start with, you've got to be creative in the first yeah. place. Well, that's, that's why my logo looks like the way it does. It's like, it's, I do kind of out-the-box thinking, but for it to work, I've got to bring it back to the box. That's what makes the money. It's all right doing all this fluffy airy stuff, but if it's got no strategy on what's it to me, it's not going to make any money, so. Well, no, no. Yeah, yeah. And it's like me, I mean, I'm not going to go and write some student short films again and I'm not yeah. make any money. I mean, I mean, that's like, the Berman City, though, by the way, mate. <laughs> yeah, but that's If anybody needs to go to Matt's site, mattgreenhouse.co.uk, look at the shorts and look at Acid Burn because that is, um, yeah. He started off on my, what is this? And then <laughs> he, he kind of just like takes on this lovely little journey, but I love that one. Yeah. It's so cool. Well, it's all about, you know. You uh, taking those magic mushrooms yeah, yeah, and yeah. tripping your tits off. So if you're into yeah. that, <laughs> that's the one for you. Right, thanks so much, mate. Appreciate it. No. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, bye. <laughs>